Hi everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Kuiper Collective. Uh, we are uh, again in this episode going to be bringing you some of what we did on faculty and alumni scholar day this fall. Uh, we were delighted to be able to have uh, Betsy DeVries, uh, a graduate of uh, Kuiper, who is uh, now uh, just finishing up her, her dissertation in theological studies at uh, the University of Toronto uh, to be with us on this day and to uh, present on her area of expertise, uh, which has to do with preaching uh, and how we think about the, the connection of preaching and uh, eschatology, uh, Christian hope. Uh, how does that hope uh, inform our preaching and, uh, and shape our preaching? And so, uh, again, what you're going to hear in this episode, the first half is uh, Betsy's presentation of this to uh, our, our community. And then in the second half, uh, you'll hear from uh, Betsy's conversation uh, with myself and uh, three panelists, practitioners uh, who are uh, you know, people who are in the field preaching, who are involved in this on a regular basis, who can, can interact with that. And so, uh, again, we're just excited to bring you this, this conversation uh, that really represents uh, what we're about. Uh, digging deep in in scholarship, but also always with a view toward uh, the practical eye. What does this mean for life and for ministry and for uh, our church context? So enjoy. Delighted today to have the opportunity to welcome Betsy DeVries uh, to be with us and to present. Uh, Betsy DeVries graduated from Kuiper in 2012 with a pre-seminary major and she went on to earn her MDiv at Calvin Seminary. Uh, and Betsy is almost done with her PhD in theological studies. Dissertation has been submitted. That's a great thing, that's a great feeling. That's a good place to be. Uh, and she's been doing that, uh, doing that PhD in theological studies with an emphasis on homiletics, preaching, uh, from Emmanuel College in the University of Toronto. Uh, she currently is a visiting scholar at the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship and is a candidate for ministry in the CRC. Uh, Betsy regularly preaches in a variety of churches throughout West Michigan and Southern Ontario uh, and lives with her husband Daniel, who's also a Kuiper alumni, and her two young sons in Drayton, Ontario. So would you join me in welcoming Betsy DeVries? Good morning. It's good to be here. Um, I don't know. I was just expecting to like see the people who I went to Kuiper with, but I guess like <laughs> I don't know why I was expecting that. Um, but yeah, it's good to be here. I'm. Uh, my dissertation is on the topic of preaching and eschatology, and I've been interested in eschatology for quite some time. My very one of my very earliest faith memories um, is when I was probably seven years old, seven or eight, and I remember lying in bed at night and just crying to my parents. So they asked me, what's wrong? Why are you sad? I said, I don't want to go to heaven. And they asked, well, why not? <laughs> they said, I don't want to go to heaven because I won't recognize anyone there without their skin on. The only person I knew how to be was a person with skin on. The only people I knew were people with skin on. <laughs> um, more recently, though, I was struck by the power of eschatology, uh, again, to create fear and anxiety in people, even sadness. I was giving an adult education talk at a church where I was working, 
As on 1 Corinthians 15, this great passage about the resurrection and the hope that we have. Afterwards, Frank asked me, when I get to heaven, will I recognize my sons? And so I gave him an answer based on 1 Corinthians 15 that I thought was pretty solid. And he said, you know, if I can't recognize my own family, that just doesn't seem right. And so I, come, I came to realize after the fact that Frank's previous pastor, who actually happened to be his son, um, gave a sermon where he explained to his people that when we get to heaven, we'll just be so caught up in worshiping God and being with God that we won't recognize anyone around us, but we won't care. Frank cared. Um, and so I was interested in exploring this connection between how we communicate the hope we have as Christians uh, in the pulpit. I started with 1 Corinthians 15. This is where Paul lays out what I call an eschatological gospel. He starts the chapter summarizing the gospel. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. This is um, one of the earliest Christian creeds that we have record of. And it's the most basic form of the gospel that Paul preached. It's what he received. It's what he passed on. At its core, this gospel message is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The burial serves as evidence that his death was a real death. The appearances serve as evidence that his resurrection was a resurrection of the body. So what does this have to do with eschatology? Well, Paul continues on in the rest of the chapter to show how the resurrection of Christ is the thing that opens up God's future to us and to all creation. The resurrection of Christ ensures our own resurrection, the final defeat of death, and the consummate reign of God over the cosmos. That's when God will be all in all. These are matters of eschatology. And so this is what leads me to my claim. That the gospel message is fundamentally oriented toward eschatology, and so when we preach the gospel, we are communicating, whether or not we realize it or intend, we're actually communicating something of its eschatological telos its end, its fulfillment. Uh, this is the foundational premise of my dissertation, that eschatology is not an, an optional add-on to the gospel. Like maybe I'll preach a sermon series on Revelation if I ever get around to it. Eschatology is more fundamentally connected to the gospel that we are called to proclaim every single week. Um, I think I'm going to have a lot to cover. So my title said something about the new homiletic and beyond. I think I'm going to nix the beyond. <laughs> I was a little aggressive in what I thought I could cover today. Um, but I do want to give just a few words, background on this term, the new homiletic, which may be a new or unfamiliar term. It is like a proper noun. It refers to a specific body of literature, a specific movement or shift in homiletics that started in about the 1950s and kind of continues up into the early 2000s, up until about the economic recession. Um, this refers to a, a shift in homiletics, kind of away from a 
uh, model of preaching that saw the main task of the sermon to be depositing information into the minds of the listeners, even persuading the listeners to believe what the preacher says. Uh, this was a mode of preaching that, the, the prior mode was the mode of preaching that prioritized logical systems and deductive arguments. Think like three-point sermons, like if A and B is true, then we must do C, those kinds of deductive arguments. The new homiletic, though, emphasizes a kind of organic structure to the sermon rather than one based on that strict deductive logic, which is to say that the structure of the sermon arises organically from the text. It's not superimposed by the rules of logic. Um, you can see some of the other emphases. I'll be going over a couple of those. But I just want to point out that this is a stream of homiletics um, that's come to, uh, say, mostly have an impact on mainline preachers. Uh, less so on evangelical uh, and reformed preachers who historically have tended to prioritize a kind of verse-by-verse expository preaching. And so there are two clear streams of uh, homiletic literature and thought in the later 20th century in North America. Okay, I'm talking about North America here. Um, so I want to recognize that I'm speaking about this stream that's come to influence mainline homiletics, which may not be the tradition that many of you come from or are most familiar with. Um, but these are they're having parallel discussions, right? This image of the river delta is apt. Like, there are two streams, but they're not separate from each other. They're kind of flowing in and out. They're headed in the same direction. Okay, so I think my point is there are parallel discussions happening along the lines of um, what gets to dictate the form of the sermon? Uh, is it logic? Is it the form of the text itself? Or is it the event of Christ's death and resurrection? Um, so I think even if you're not, even if you're from an expository, reformed, or even evangelical context, I hope this conversation is fruitful for you as well. Um, I think what I'll do next is a summary of, of my research into the literature of the New Homiletic. Uh, eschatology is rarely mentioned as a separate or discrete topic in the literature but it is often implied. Like, it's all over the place if you're looking for it. Um, but the fact that it's rarely mentioned is what led Thomas Long, in 2009, to lament a lack of eschatology in the pulpit. So for the next little while, I'm interested in investigating the degree to which Long's lament is accurate by looking to the new homiletic for how to preach about eschatology and for direction on how to preach eschatologically. The difference between these two is the difference between preaching about eschatology as a separate doctrine uh, or topic and preaching about eschatology as a deep theological structure that orients all gospel-centered preaching. I'll claim that I'll show that Long's Lament does indeed seem warranted when we look to the new homiletic for a direction on how to preach about eschatology, but that the new homiletic offers many more productive avenues for preaching eschatologically because it articulates something of the deep theological tension and movement that is intrinsic to the gospel, and which then can be reflected week to week in every sermon.
Uh, one of the emphases in the new homiletic is this idea that um, the sermon is a word event, that something happens. This is not just me talking and you receiving the information, but there is something dynamic happening when I say these words, and the, the space in between is rich and thick. Something happens there. Okay, so David Randolph and Charles Rice are some of the first writers in homiletics to see um, the primary task of preaching should be to facilitate an encounter with God. This is a shift, again, like I said, uh, that from homiletics that saw the primary task of preaching to be transmitting information or persuading the congregation to believe what you say. Around the same time as Randolph and Rice, uh, Fred Craddock argues that the spoken word event, that is the sermon, cannot happen in isolation. It both presupposes and creates community. So listeners are not simply receptacles for information or doctrine, but they're participants in the event. And so in order to foster community, the preacher should seek modes of discourse that, quote, are appropriate for communicating the content to be shared and the experience he or she hopes will occur, unquote. So for Craddock, there is an inextricable link between the content and the form of the message. Then in 1989, Thomas Long connects the word event in preaching, a word event and interpretation with the word event in preaching by means of the claim of the text. He says everything about a biblical text works in concert to, to uh, exert a claim upon each new set of faithful readers. He says biblical texts say things that do things, and the sermon ought to say and do those same things. So for long, both the event of the sermon and then the ideas that come out of it are governed by the claim of the given text. Oops, there's Tom Long. Uh, so there's a natural progression that's at work here that I think is worth observing. Given now that the goal of preaching is to facilitate a word event, that is, an encounter with God, and given that content and form are inextricably linked together, it makes sense then that the preacher would look to the form of the text as an appropriate mode of discourse, not only for communicating, but actually doing what the text does. I think this is the part that I need to... Uh, well, I'll just say this. There's um, the natural question that kind of flows out of this word event emphasis, um, it becomes what mode of discourse or what form then is most appropriate for communicating a word of eschatological hope. Following the logic of long, the preacher should look to the shape of uh, whichever texts say and do hope in order to answer this question. But it also stands to reason that the preacher ought not set out to do or proclaim hope unless it is the claim of the text you're preaching from. This limits the preacher to speaking a word of hope only if and when the text itself is concerned with hope. Unfortunately, Long's own book on preaching the genres of scripture doesn't even cover eschatological or apocalyptic genres, so he's no help to us there. 
Um, there was, I'll say, more effort made in the 1990s to kind of address this question, to give preachers direction on how to preach apocalyptic texts, um, probably because of the anxiety surrounding the turn of the millennium. <clears throat> but that's all I'm going to say, I think, about uh, the development of the word event. That, okay. Oh, sorry. This is what I just said. I'm going to say the eventfulness, so, okay, now evaluating this theme of the word event. I think the eventfulness of Christian proclamation is undoubtedly an asset for the preacher who is interested in speaking a word of hope. Because hope born from the gospel is not a static doctrine or a list of beliefs that you can deposit into someone's mind. But a person's hope can be stirred through an event of encounter with the God of hope through an encounter with the gospel of hope. Although the focus on the word event in the New Homiletic presents a difficulty for preaching eschatological hope, the language of word event becomes so thoroughly embedded in the New Homiletic that it becomes increasingly less clear if facilitating a word event is the same thing as preaching the gospel. It's not clear if when we read a word event in the literature, should that be read as a reference to the gospel? This is not clear. The writers are not explicit about this. But an easy or a quick equation of a word event and the gospel may be problematic. Especially if you believe that the gospel itself, remember what I read from Paul that summary of the gospel, if you believe the gospel itself has specific content, form, direction, and performative action, that is, it does something specific, if you believe the gospel has that, it may not always easily cohere with the content, form, direction, and the action of every possible preaching text. Right? These things do not always line up neatly. So the eventfulness of Christian proclamation that developed into a preoccupation with the form or the genre of a text may not, on its own, always account for the task of proclaiming the gospel, which I've argued is eschatological. So having come up somewhat short uh, on eschatological possibilities, I'll turn to a second uh, significant avenue of development in the new homiletic, and that's the elevation of narrative and plot as invaluable tools for proclamation. <clears throat> so in addition to an emphasis on the word event, the new homiletic elevated narrative and storytelling, especially parabolic storytelling, because Jesus often spoke in parables. One way to ensure that the same event that happened when Jesus spoke would happen, uh, happens when we speak would be to imitate what Jesus did to learn from Jesus' own discourse. H. Grady Davis anticipates these insights when he writes in uh, 1958 about narrative as an organic form for sermons, citing the parables of Jesus as examples of how ideas can be communicated in story form. Then Eugene Lowry takes some notes from Davis, uh, his idea that organic sermons ought to have uh, continuity and movement. For Lowry, this means that every sermon ought to have a plot, not just sermons on texts that have a plot themselves. 
Uh, so Lowry has the six stages or movements in the homiletical plot. I'm not going to go over those except to say that uh, the important development in Lowry is that his plot moves toward the gospel. Again, it's not clear what he means by gospel. Okay, that ambiguity is very common in the new homiletic. And yet by connecting plot to the gospel, he identifies the necessity of movement in the gospel. The gospel isn't just an intellectual assent to a reasonable set of beliefs. It's a narrating of events in a way that enrolls people into the drama of God's saving actions. The gospel isn't static. It contains theological movement. In Frederick Buechner's terms, the movement towards grace and preaching is not only theologically warranted, it is actually compulsory if you expect to communicate the truth of the gospel. Buechner writes about the truth of the gospel as the interplay between tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. The gospel is a tragedy, he writes, quote, because it is the news that man is a sinner, that he's evil in the imagination of his heart, and that when he looks in the mirror, all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, and slob, unquote. <laughs> After the bad news, the gospel is also good news. I would say after the bad news, the gospel is also good news. Quote, it is also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also blood for, unquote. There is a tension and a sequence to the truth of the gospel. Buechner takes it one step further by suggesting it's not enough to preach the tragedy and the comedy. One must also preach the fairy tale of the gospel. Quote, finally let them preach this overwhelming of tragedy by comedy, of darkness by light, of the ordinary by the extraordinary, as the tale that is too good to not be true. Unquote. Whereas other homiletic writers are unclear about what they mean by gospel, Buechner is clear. He says that, that is the gospel, this meeting of darkness and light and the final victory of light, unquote. Buechner is articulating something of the form, we might even say the plot of the gospel. There is tension between light and darkness and movement toward the final victory of light. In a similar vein, Richard Lisher offers up the Lutheran dialectic of law and gospel as normative for preaching. I'm going to skip over that a little bit. Um, Paul Scott Wilson offers an approach to sermon preparation that also echoes the tension and the movement of the gospel seen in Buechner and Lisher. In Wilson's approach, this is what I learned when I was, at, uh, when I was here at Kuiper, and Calvin Seminary, for that matter, and he's my supervisor, okay? He's my doctoral supervisor. I'm a little biased, okay. Um, in Wilson's approach, a sermon is made up of four pages or movements, the trouble in the text, the trouble in the world, the grace in the text, and the grace in the world. The concept of four pages is often used as a form for preaching, but it shouldn't be reduced to one possible form among many possible forms for preaching. Instead, it's best understood and best used as a deep theological structure of gospel proclamation, where the tensive nature of trouble and grace and the text and the world uh, 
constitute God's encounter with us uh, today. This grammar can be used to evaluate many different forms of preaching. Uh, It's a four-part structure that moves in the direction of grace as it highlights God's saving works in Jesus Christ. Wilson's approach identifies a theological form in the gospel that, like Beekner and Lisher, contains both tension and movement, while at the same time, this is what he offers that the others haven't, ensuring that the gospel is always experienced through the lens of a particular text. I'm going to have to skip this development piece here. I can say more about that if you are curious. But that's just um, more recent literature, okay, on this theme of plot and uh, plot in the gospel. But let me just... Um, so what, what thing does this all have to do with eschatology, right? Because like I said, it's implied here, but it's not made explicit. The development of plot in the new homiletic, I think, is fertile ground for preaching eschatologically. And in light of the writers that I've already mentioned, we can observe that Long's lament, right, about the lack of eschatology may actually be a reflection of his own narrower focus on preaching genres um, than a reflection of all the possibilities for eschatological preaching in the new homiletic. Already in 1977, we saw Buechner is articulating the tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale that is oriented toward the eschatological hope for the final victory of light. Uh, these eschatological possibilities are aided by the focus on the theological structure of the gospel as the grammar for proclaiming the gospel. So whether it's articulated as tragedy and comedy, as law and gospel, suffering and victory, trouble and grace, each of these, I would argue, can be grounded in the Christ event that is central to the gospel message, right? That gospel message Paul summarized in 1 Corinthians 15. By holding these things in genuine tension with each other, the preacher is able to fully speak the truth about the present situation, to not, like, make things out better than what they are, to call a thing what it really is. The preacher is able to name what needs correction. The life, the suffering, and the death of Christ allows the preacher to look deep into pain, suffering, even chaos and death, and to say, God is with us. This is an unparalleled comfort, and it should not be underestimated. But the movement of the gospel in the direction of resurrection allows the preacher to add, God is presently with us in our suffering, and God is going to do something about it. God's continued uh, presence is the basis for comfort. God's promised eschatological action is the basis for our hope. So movement toward God's eschatological promises, toward the final fairy tale of the victory of light, is essential for the preacher who wants to speak a word of eschatological hope that is consistent with the gospel. Yet, uh, Richard Lisher helpfully warns against resolution. Movement, right, should not undo the tension in a way that suggests a simple... uh, Reference in the sermon to the resurrection just solves all our problems. Rather, movement in the sermon toward resurrection, toward God's 
promises can be thought of as a goad, like a poking stick, stabbing at the present to get it moving along toward God's good future. Neither should this movement in the sermon be a cause for complacency or quietism, as if nothing can be done to change the way things are, and so we'll just sit around and wait for the coming reign of God. Rather, hopeful movement ought to serve as an encouragement and a motivator to act in accordance with God's good intentions for all creation. So eschatological preaching should not promote quietism or escapism. Rather, uh, what I argue in my dissertation, I don't have time to cover really, is that a hopeful movement actually encourages imagination in action. Hope is active. Hope does not sit back and wait. <clears throat> so just... Hmm, nope, not going to summarize. Sorry, hope you're following along. <laughs> Uh, I, because I want to get to these practical implications for uh, preachers. Okay. So these are my suggestions for preachers, or someday if you aspire to be a preacher, and even if you don't, when I was here, this was not on my radar, so listen up, even if you don't <laughs> uh, My first suggestion is, um, when you're doing your exegesis, Identify God's saving action in or behind whatever text you're looking at. This is a theological exercise because it might not always be clear in your text, but this is one of the questions you're always asking when you're looking at a text. What is God doing here? And this is based on the conviction that God is the first and the primary actor not only in hope, but more basically in the gospel. Um, and that the fulfillment of God's promises is something that God has to do. Like, God invites us to join in and all of that, but, uh, like, we should be clear about who started the car and who's driving. You know what I mean? Um, so use this as your theme sentence. for you. This is the focus of your sermon. This is what you're there to proclaim, is the saving actions of God. And so if you can't answer that question about your text, then... Um, I would challenge you to think if you're uh, proclaiming the gospel. My second suggestion is to develop this tension between God's saving action or promise and the problematic situation in the text or in our world. Again, uh, Paul Wilson's four pages is helpful here, I think. Um, move toward resurrection. Move toward God's saving action in your sermon. Because this is the rhythm... This is the plot of the gospel. Uh, so develop your theme sentence really in the second half of your sermon. Spend the first half, half kind of uh, explaining, exploring the um, problematic situation. And the second half move towards what God is doing about it. Uh, fourth, give people hopeful narratives and images of God's saving action that help them to see the presence of God's promises now. Uh, God's promises are already present, even if not yet in their fullness. And since it's the case, by the way, that God's, presence, God's promises are present, like, we should be able to find examples of that. Um, like People kind of push back against this. Like I don't want to name the actions of God today. How dare I? Well, you're drawing it from the text, right? This is the saving action of God in the text. 
And if you believe that God is the same God today that God was in the Bible, then God is still doing these things, right? Mm -hmm. So we should see, we should be able to find examples of this and share those with your people so that they can see the presence of God's promises today. Uh, And then finally, give your people permission to imagine the future fullness of God's promises, but hold these images loosely. Um, God's future is unimaginably more and better than anything we can dream up. I'll just, I'll end with with this. Uh, Going back to Frank, who I talked about in the introduction. Frank's preacher imagined a new heavens and a new earth that excluded meaningful relationships with family or friends or just like anyone for that matter other than God. It's a vision of worship that's individual, just like me and God forever. But here, I want to I ask, what would it look like to, Im- to imagine the future fullness of God's promises, where Frank is not only worshiping alongside his family, but worshiping uh, with people from every tribe and nation and language? What would it look like for Frank to be worshiping alongside those people who he hurt in his lifetime, who he experienced alienation from in his lifetime? What would it look like to imagine Frank worshiping alongside the cosmos? Do you feel the difference in imagination here? Do you feel the difference in scope beyond, uh, between Frank and God and Frank alongside the cosmos and God? I've encouraged preachers to aim for the fuller imagination in our preaching. Of course, this is a sanctified imagining, right? Informed by scripture and the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, I'm out of time. I'll say just for listeners, if you're not a preacher or don't intend to be, I think you can use this as a tool for listening to sermons. It helps you to listen for the gospel, right? Um, listening for the gospel isn't just about, did, he meant, did the preacher mention Jesus? <laughs> it has more basically to do with the form, um, the underlying form and structure of the sermon itself, the deep movement. But also it's a call to examine what it is that you believe about the future because this is impacting your life and ministry, I would argue, even if you're not uh, aware of it. Um, so, I, yeah, I'll end it there. Uh, and we can, I have questions for the panel too, but um, if the conversation lags, we need to those. If we don't, it's fine. <laughs> Thanks. All right, while, while you're, some of you are continuing to enter uh, your questions, and I'd encourage you to go on there as well if there's a question that you see that uh, you particularly like, would like the panel uh, to speak to, that you uh, give it a thumbs up, and uh, we'll, we'll see what emerges to the top uh, in a minute. Uh, but I would uh, I'd like to welcome the panel and uh, just invite them to uh, take a minute and introduce yourself. Uh, just let us know who you are, where you're from. Uh, and your, your own ministry context, and uh, once you say a word of introduction, then I'll come back and ask a follow-up question about what stood out to you, and we'll get things rolling that way. Well, I'm Dan Cruzy, and uh, I'm from here. professor of biblical studies here at Kuiper College, uh, but more than that, uh, I'm also a preaching pastor uh, at a local church where I preach every Sunday, so I'm involved in ministry, preaching, and teaching all at the same time, hopefully to bring sort of cross fertilization to the church and the classroom and all of that. 
Yeah, my name is Ben Campmeyer, and uh, I am. I currently serve a church in Byron Center, south of here, as the lead pastor. Really, the new lead pastor. Been there for about a year, and um, yeah, I preach regularly. So, your su- suggestions for preachers always appreciate help. I am Libby Heisinger. I am your library services specialist. Um, I am also a preacher, and I have academic interests in the overlap of eschatology and ethics. Yeah. Well, good panelists. Welcome. Thank you for being here and uh, willing to engage on this subject. Uh, and so maybe, Libby, you've got the microphone, so I just throw this question to everybody uh, right, down the, right down the row. Uh, as you heard Betsy's presentation, what stood out to you or resonated with you? Uh, what, what's, what's a big takeaway for you from, uh, from her talk? A big takeaway for me is, is really a question kind of relating to Thomas Long and this idea of, um, of preaching the form versus preaching the narrative. I, I guess I'm left wondering how that overlaps with things like uh, Dr. Soon Chan Ra's prophetic lament of this idea of lament as an, as an important part of Christian community and how do we preach sermons that truly practice lament while, or perhaps let me rephrase, are we truly practicing lament if we move on to eschatology? So that's, that's a question I'm left with. Yeah, I think for me, um, because I'm, I'm sitting in this in a, in a very practical, regular sense, I do this almost every week, and what, what I appreciate, Betsy, uh, most of all, is your suggestion, uh, which I think is incredibly it's biblical, it's gospel, that hope is not the subcategory that we shoehorn into the sermon every week. It's not a, it's not a hot topic you know, sermon series like I, I'll preach about heaven because I need more attendance. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's this, you've heard that sermon series before, I, I guess. You know, it's, it's this overarching um, theme of faithfulness, and what really caught me most, what I love that, that I think you suggested, and just to put in my own words, is it gives us guardrails as preachers to make sure we know who has mastery in the text. And so you talk about, you know, it's God who's driving the cars. We preach toward hope. Uh, that requires us, uh, maybe, especially in, our, in this kind of West Michigan context, where we have a information transformation is sort of the... That, that's a language that some of the folks, at least I get to preach to, they're looking for. There's almost a subtlety of a desire that we would master the text and hope reorients that and moves it the right way around. And, uh, and so if anything, I think it protects us as preachers to be faithful and dividing the word rightly and serving our people. So I really appreciated how you offered that up. Uh, yeah, thanks, Betsy. Oh, sitting in my revelation class and I didn't know how worried you were. <laughs> I'm glad you got over there. Uh, I guess the thing that's, uh, that really stood out for me was just the way that you talked about gospel. Because as preachers, I mean, this is what we say we do. We proclaim the gospel. And, and, and it turns out, you know, that the gospel is much bigger than a lot of people think. And that's, that's what you really brought out, that you know, and that this gospel includes sort of an eschatological orientation. You know, that of course it's about the cross. Of course it's about forgiveness of sins. Of course it's about atonement and going to heaven when we die. But that's only a small part of the gospel. 
and that it's a much bigger thing that I think of, sort of gives us hope for life in this world. And what we do now, and the service that we offer now, and the obedience that we give Christ now, that these aren't sort of just you know, disconnected moral commands or just nice things that we do for people who are in trouble. You know, but there's a tell us. And that we can sort of bring the finished work of Christ into the unfinished world. And it can encourage people to, to act and put their imagination into action. Good, that's really helpful. Um, let's, go to, let's go to Slido. See what, see what questions we got at the top. Um, so we'll, we'll take the first question. Is there fear that sermons all essentially ending in Christ makes all things new may become formulaic, therefore becoming mundane to a regular congregation? It just becomes, so if, if I'm reading that right, kind of, you know, yeah, we, we know what the hope is. We hear about it. It gets repeated. Great. That's, I think that's a common question. And uh, if you're familiar at all with four pages of the sermon, actually, that's a super common criticism that people have. Like, well, isn't, are people just going to get sick of this same formula, formula right, for preaching every week? And I have um, two things I'm going to try to remember to say. The first is that um, formulas work. Like, have you ever watched a sitcom? Did you, like, they are literally, they are all following the same form. Like, every single week, and we eat this stuff up. We love it. Right? So, like, I don't, for me, I don't think people are as uh, acutely aware of the form as the preacher is. Because what they're hearing is the content of what you're saying. And so if you have, this is, I think, addressing the second thing I was going to say. Um, if it's ground, it, it's the gospel always grounded in a specific text. It's not generally like uh, humanity fell and Christ redeemed us and new creation. Like that's the master right thing, but it's always particular to a text. And so when you ask the question about a text, what is God doing in or behind this text? You're going you're gonna to have variations of it, right? It's the scope of God's redemption, which is huge, which is not the same every week, and it's not the same in every text. Um, and, and so then the way, okay, so if you have God's saving action in the text, you connect that to God's promises, because God's saving action is God's promise to us to be the same that God was in the Bible. This is how God continues to deal with God's people today. And so it's always... It's always nuanced, and so then um, you can draw in different images of the eschaton. It's not just that Christ makes all things new. Like, if you read the book of Revelation, it's full of this rich imagery, right? And you don't have to say the same thing every week because there's so many different nuances to it and so many rich pictures. Um, okay, so first of all, I don't think forms are as big a problem as preachers might feel like they are. And second of all, it's grounded in a specific text, which gives it a different texture and different content on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, uh, well, I'll just, just be brief here, but just, you know, Christ makes all things new. I think when we say that, when we preach that, I think what our congregation hears is Christ will make all things new. Someday. And we'll wait for that. 
in the meantime, let's just tread water till we get there. And I think, and I think I appreciate what you said that we need to take every text, every text, and, and find its eschatological orientation, and find out what is Christ doing now. What is he doing in and through the church now? What is he doing for the world now? And to find that sort of gospel-shaped, sort of you know Christ-centered, you know active uh, engagement in the text. So it's not just what you know. Yeah, Christ is going to make all things new, but he is making all things new. Right? Yeah, and and I would just add, you know, um, in in my own life, I I recently transitioned from sort of the associate pastor gets to preach once a, once a month, once a quarter, again, into regular preacher. And so you learn really quickly that uh, you, have, you have no choice but to be formulaic. And so I would rather be formulaic than faithless. And, and personally, my, you know, my concern is that uh, so often we're, we're worried about uh, capturing people's attentions and, and I really think what you said about imagination is key. We need their attention, but we should, as preachers, assume we don't have it when we start. I mean, that's just the reality of when, when we say in our church, you can read along uh, in your Bible on your phone. Maybe your church doesn't do that. But when, when we say that, it's like, well, I know everything's in front of you anyway. So you may not be there. I think there is a call to preachers not just to entertain for the sake of attention, but to just be faithful. And that just may require some formula. And so I'm with you on that. I think it's okay. I also think that uh, hope doesn't necessarily play the role of entertaining. That's not the that's not the purpose of hope. It's more like food in that way that you eat every day, you brush your teeth every day, and you don't necessarily love it or get excited about brushing your teeth every single time that you do it, but it's good for you. And it's these these rhythms of remembering what it is that God is doing that allows you to get up and do what you have to do every day. So I think about people who are fighting huge battles against injustice, and they could at the end of the day say, man, I did not accomplish anything. Or I've done all of this work, and I've only moved the needle a little bit towards righteousness. And how important is it for those people to hear, at least once a week, God is making all things new. And so I don't think we have to think about hope as something meant to entertain, but rather to sustain. Yeah, that's good. Part of what you just said makes me think that how there's a link between sustainable social justice depends on deep eschatological preaching, right? That there's a, there's a deep connection there. And so I think often we see those two as maybe divorced and not, don't see how those are, those are intertwined for us. I do want to talk a bit about that because of what you brought up about lament. Um, <clears throat> because I would argue that we can't lament fully or properly um, without hope. <laughs> what keeps our lament from despair? Um, and when I spoke about the movement of hope, that implies the resurrect. you don't get the resurrection without the cross, right? Like, uh, you don't get resurrection without death. And so, actually, I think it's our eschatology, it's our hope that gives us the courage to lament. Because if you don't have a vibrant hope for the future, you're going to avoid that stuff. Because right? like, there's nothing to get you out of it. <laughs> um, so, 
I forget, but I wanted to address that because I think it's an important point, and I think that they're very much connected and not separate things. Yeah, that's good. Do either of the other panelists want to chime in, or, or Libby as well? You kind of raised the initial question. How does, yeah, how do you navigate that tension of lament and hope, and, and how do you see that working itself out uh, as as you preach? And, and my my maybe my experience, we tend to jump to the hope sooner than we should. But how how do you hold all that intention? Well, yeah. Uh, now, obviously, lament is a big part of anybody's life, and I just I think uh, sort of the, the book of First Peter, and, and his whole thing is about suffering, and and having a living hope. And so I think you're right. You know, our God is active and up to something and doing something, even in our pain and even in our suffering. The, the cross was meaningful and purposeful, and the suffering of Christ was redemptive. And so can ours be not the way Christ was, but there can be meaning to it. And, and I think, you know, that's, you know, yeah, if, if we keep in mind this movement and this living hope, uh, we can even, as Peter says, end up in a place of joy. And, so. and I, was, I was just thinking, too, as, as you were sharing how critical these things are to intersect each other in the same sermon, that there is a kind of preaching... It's very popular. You just scroll Instagram, and it's like a, it's a it's a hopeless preaching that seems to be all about hope. It's it's this narrative of self help, and you can do it, and you're and it's actually it's very empty of hope uh, because it never it never addresses the darkness that the Buechner thing of the the gospel is is you are bloody and beaten and still loved yet, and I I think faithful preaching to your point elevating that faithful preaching wants to see both lament and hope interacting together in sort of high-definition color together so that you would feel the, the darkness richly, uh, that the light may shine brightly. And, you know, I, I think, again, in a, in, a, in a setting, in an area where people are like, well, what can I learn about God mentally today when I'm listening to this uh, person preach? The opportunity is to then bring him into the, that experience, that word event of what, what I get to feel and taste. You reference. Romans uh, 15, 13, this is Paul's benediction. May the God of hope, by the power of the Holy Spirit, his peace and his joy, fill you with hope. That they'll actually taste of that. I think it comes through addressing lament in the preaching. I think in some ways, preachers have all of these things that we want to do. Or I also lead worship and I have all of these goals for the congregation. But one of the things that stops us from staying in lament long enough is that we have this idea that our services have to be an hour and your sermons have to be 20 minutes. And so I think that sometimes our, our cultural expectations of what church has to be curtails our theology. Good. Well, let's take another question uh, from Slido. Uh, uh, something just popped. <laughs> you highlighting that, Mike? What's happening? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with the one. That, we'll come back to that with the fun, the fun question. Um, but I do want to go with the one that I think is at the top, unless somebody just hit a bunch of likes, uh, with 11 there, is why is the old homiletic, with its emphasis on logic, assumed to not have the goal of facilitating an encounter with God? Okay. 
here's a short answer that I think is accurate. Um, an encounter with God is a full body experience. Um, in your body, like in your bones, in your heart, the emphasis on logic is addressing a disembodied brain on a stick, um, which is characteristic of the modern period, I think is um, probably fair to say. So, so that's, that's the kind of philosophical uh, background for the old way, is that you're, you're addressing people's minds, and so it's not about uh, having an, experience, like an embodied experience encountering God in the flesh, but it's about um, knowing the right things. Um, yeah, that's short. Yeah. I think it would also relate then to who gets to encounter God. Um, it has to be somebody who's, you know, maybe speaks the same language as, as the preacher or has the big enough vocabulary or maybe is old enough to think logically or has that logical capacity. And so while I think we can experience God in this like full body way through logic, there are those of us who can do that. There are many others who can't. And so, or maybe there are others who just, they have the capacity to engage with God logically, but that's just not how they meet God. And so I think it's, it's maybe one aspect of good preaching, but it certainly does not meet the needs of everyone, if that's the only thing we do. Yeah, well, just real quick. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes what that old logical kind of thing can do is it, it can sort of leave people in despair. You know, and, and he's a, you, know, uh, uh, you know, here's a proposition, here's the truth, here's what you should do, here are some disciplines you can practice, you know, be good, you know, because Christians are good, so be good, and if bad, be bad. And, and I think people get that, and then they walk away, and they go, okay, that doesn't work, because I leave. <laughs> and, and, and I need to come back next Sunday and be all filled up again. And they don't, don't really ever encounter God and his life and live his life and, and feel his life in them. It just everything, the Christian life ends up being all just this disconnected. Moralism, service, and everything is not connected to the presence, experience with God. Yeah, all, all I would say in addition is, I really like what you said in the beginning, this childhood story about recognizing people by having skin on. And so I'm, I'm in the Reformed tradition, kind of untimely born. I, I was formed by charismatics who just assumed when you go to church, you're going to experience God. Like that, when, that's what church is, meant to be uh, in a community sense. You talked about that as well. And so I think uh, what, what I'm wondering, and maybe you have more thoughts on this, is, is part of the old homiletic, it's not that I personally have no problem with three points in a poem. I think it's effective and it, it's, it can work. Like you said, maybe forms are not, not as big of a deal as preachers make them to be. I, I wonder if it's actually an issue of application that so often it's sometimes the old homiletic feels like teaching that never leads to an embodying. It's just like, well, there's another brain dump for the week. And, and if we can get there, if hope produces action in us, we want to run out of church and do something. And so, I, yeah, I just wonder if application has more of the issue to do with it in experiencing God than even the form. Um, I would like to address that because I think that you're, um, I would agree with that. But I want to add, um, what kind of application are we talking about? 
Are we talking always, always about moral application? Or can um, talking about God's saving action in the present be a different kind of application as well? Um, that, that's an encounter with God when, when you see God acting in the present tense. And it is, it is our in, invitation to join God um, in hope. Uh, that it is ultimately God making all things new. But I, w- I want to push our notions of what application can be. That it's not, it's not always... And if you're always ending a sermon with a moral application, okay, go out and do this, I would um, caution that maybe that's not even the trajectory of the gospel. That's a truncated gospel. Because the, es- the eschatological focus tells us, like, it's not, we're not the ones building the kingdom. We're not the ones who are going to bring the kingdom. We get to join in God's work, but ultimately, it is God's work that's going to do this, right? Um, so I totally on board, totally agree, but let's expand our notion of what application can be. All right, I think we have time for one more question briefly. Uh, and it's it's the one at the top. What's the most fun you've had preaching eschatologically? Not clear if this is about eschatology or preaching eschatologically. A little bit of a nuance there. But um, what's the most fun you've had preaching es- eschatologically? Uh, one of the um, my favorite sermons, not because like it was so awesome, but because I just loved it, was on... Um, God's promise to Abraham and Sarah uh, when the angel comes to Sarah and she just laughs. And it's not a hopeful laughter. Um, it's a laughter of despair. Like, I'm going to laugh so I don't cry that I haven't had a child yet. Um, and so identifying God's saving action in the text, what is God doing? Well, ultimately, God is fulfilling God's promises to Sarah and that turns her laughter into laughter of joy. And so this, again, the form here, it's the same form, but like I'm not going to end every single... The nuance in this text is to end with a picture of joyful laughter um, as the fullness of God's promises come to us. It's this unbidden and holy laughter. It's the comedy of the gospel. Uh, The most fun I've had preaching eschatologically is when I've done it from the Old Testament. Because a lot of times you think, well, if you're going to preach eschatological, you've got to preach a series on Revelation. You know, and I think the way we understand the gospel now is that the gospel is found in the Old Testament. And we can preach eschatologically from the Old Testament. And so it's, it's just, I, it's, it's fun, you can use that word, I guess, to open up the gospel to a congregation from a little-known text in the Old Testament. Not that we have to find Jesus in every text, because we sometimes can't. But what we have to do is take the text and disclose where, it, where that text stands in relation to Christ, in relation to the gospel, in relation to the full gospel, gospel So it's just fun to open up stuff in the Old Testament that people never even imagined. I, I think for me, um, you know, my, my context, my context I've served in have been um, 
sort of defined by some specific categories. So I preach to a pretty conservative evangelical group of people. I, to be their preacher, I am probably that in some ways. And I love when, um, when, we, when we preach eschatologically, when, when we preach so that we realize, you know, the, I can't remember which author talked about this, but the hymn, I'll Fly Away, that escapism is not, you know, I'm married to Baptist, so, but she would give me permission to say this. That, that's a great Baptist hymn. That, that, that's really not our end in mind, is not to just get out of here and finally get out from under it. But like when I, when I preach to folks, and we talk about how like you being flesh and blood and God doing what he's doing and reading passages like 1 Corinthians 15 has bearing on right now. You know, I remember preaching a Thanksgiving service and then going to the Lord's table and talking about how the table you're going to eat turkey at in a minute points to a bigger table. And so when, when people see that, when they realize maybe I shouldn't throw a McDonald's wrapper out my window, not because I'm a cr- you know crazy about the ecosystem, but because this is God's creation and he is... Uh, making all things new, that when it changes people in a surprising way, that's the most fun I've had. Uh, I would also say that I like preaching eschatologically from the Old Testament. I recently opened a sermon on Jonah asking the question, um, or presenting the situation, you wake up on your first day in heaven, and you walk outside to your mailbox, and the person next door waves at you, and you go, oh, no, not that. Who's the person that you wouldn't want to spend an eternity with? Uh, and so I think that uh, <laughs> that eschatology allows us to engage with texts in ways that are radical and life-changing and allows us to say, oh, if this were eternity, what would that mean? And if God were to actually create this sort of change in the world, what would that mean? And I think once you actually accept this as like a reality and true hope, it automatically starts changing the way you think about your day-to-day life. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Would you join me in thanking our panelists? So we are, we're shifting gears a little bit. Uh, my church has just finished up, we're just finishing up preaching through the book of Revelation. And one thing, yeah, one thing that has struck me about that again is how much that book is about worship and how much the focus is on worship. And so we're going to take about a 10 minute break, uh, but we get the chance in about 10 minutes to join in the worship, the thunderous worship that is happening right now. And that is a foretaste of what's going to come. So I would strongly encourage you, uh, hang around for about 10 minutes or so. We'll let the van get set up and then we'll join in a time of worship together. Thanks.
Uh, well, we're, we're privileged. This is something that we're doing new this year at Scholarly. We're privileged to have uh, panelists with us, guests who are willing to come uh, and contribute and speak into uh, the Kuiper community and uh, speak to these things at hand. And so we're going to have about a half an hour of just a good time of discussion and engagement with what Brian has presented. Uh, and so if I could ask panelists, uh, if we just go down the row, uh, to introduce yourself, uh, tell us uh, who you are, uh, your ministry context and role, and uh, just a little bit about where you're coming from as you hear this. Yeah. Uh, my name is Dan Krigo. My name is Dan Krigo, and I have the privilege of serving as the Executive Director of West Michigan Youth for Christ. I also served for about 18 years before that, so the last 12 years I've been Executive Director, and 18 years before that as Student Ministries Pastor at Calvary Church just down the road. Hi, my name is Joe Carroll. I am a Youth Pastor up in Rockford, so not too far from here. I've been doing youth ministry for 11 years now, and that includes uh, junior high and senior high and uh, kind of fourth and fifth graders on the way up and college kids on the way out or not on the way out. And uh, so just really enjoy doing that and uh, really honored to be here. It's not often you meet an expert youth pastor panelist. So. Hello, my name is Giovanna Allen. I'm a Kuiper College graduate. Um, I had the pleasure of taking Brian's um, relational youth ministry class um, some years ago. I'm currently working at Calvin College as an academic counselor. Um, I have about 15 years, 14 years in youth ministry. I um, started in 2005 working at a parachurch ministry called Camp Tall Turf for Tall Turf Ministries. And from there, I served four years at Oakdale Christian Reformed Church and three years out in California attending Fuller Theological Seminary. Well, welcome. We're so thankful that you are all here. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, I'd just kind of like to hear your initial thoughts, takeaways, like as you heard Brian's presentation, uh, what stood out to you that, that really you would say amen to, that you see uh, truth in, or, or maybe places where uh, you would spin off a little bit of what he says and, and share a little bit about what you've seen from that in your own life and ministry context. I would say the pacing part, walking with students building authentic relationships is very important um, in ministry because like you said, you cannot begin to tell them and speak into their life until they know that you care and that you are willing to be there. Um, I've had the pleasure of walking with some of my students for 13, 14 years, and they are in their mid-20s. Some of them are married, but we're still doing life together. I'm welcomed at their house. They're welcomed at my house. Um, we also just do impromptu shopping trips together. So it's just wonderful and able to just form Bible studies or go to church together. So I think that pacing and walking with students is very important. Sometimes it's not easy um, building those relationships, but if you stick with it, uh, just the effects and everything will just be lifelong and just just great. Yeah, I like how Brian opened up with the story of Mike and his impact in your life. And uh, I just remember growing up going to youth group and uh, my youth pastor, so I was a, a wrestler in high school, and so that was that was like my primary identity. Um, you know, it's, 
kind of shallow, but in the same, in same sense, when you're in high school, you kind of try to find an identity and hold on for dear life. And so that's who I was known as um, in high school and in my family and by my friends. Um, but at church, you know, I was, I was just another person in the crowd. And uh, my youth pastor had said, hey, I'm going to come to one year meet sometime. And he would, he would always ask me about it. And I, I'd tell him the experience, but he hadn't um, seen it. He hadn't been there. And so I was getting kind of bummed out because he hadn't shown up uh, to one of my meets. So he didn't really actually know me, you know. Um, but then one time I looked out and he was in the crowd and that's all it took. I felt um, actually known by him. I felt like he cared enough to show up. And I was across town, so that really meant a lot to me. And that really got a buy-in um, from me with this relationship that he actually cares. So that goes a long ways when, when someone shows up, even if it's just a one event, um, you, it, it's hard to say they don't care when someone shows up, so. I think one of the things I really resonated with was um, that we do need the support of like our senior pastors and our churches and all that. Because I, I remember when I was at Calvary, um, the first question I would always get asked was, well, how many kids did you have on your retreat or your event or whatever? And it seemed like you were getting judged based on just the numbers. And I tried to change that conversation um, to another question. And that was, how much time am I spending with students? And then I realized that was even the wrong question because it wasn't about me, but it was about me mobilizing an army of leaders uh, to be able to do that. And so the real question, the real measurement that we used in our ministry that I think you're, you're getting at is, how much time are leaders spending with kids? And going in that pacing presence with them uh, through life and walking through that. And I think that's the question that, that we need to ask as youth workers and ministry workers. And um, I'm thankful that I had a, a senior pastor who understood that. And so he didn't require me to be in the office all the time. And we do the same thing at Youth for Christ where we give, we give our, our staff a really small, like tiny little table where that's their, their space where they can work. And if they spend a lot of time there, um, they're probably not gonna last long in our organization because we want them outside with their leaders and with kids and going into that scary, there's only one thing scarier than a middle school lunchroom it's a high school lunchroom, and, uh, and we want them in that room, and we want them in that place, and I think that's what you're saying, and, and that's what I appreciate so much. Yeah, I kind of want to follow up on that question a little bit, and maybe a few people can address that first, and then uh, Joe or Javon, if you have other things to add. What does it take, as I'm hearing you talking about that, it makes me think not just about youth ministry, but just how we do church, how we do discipleship, that just like we ask you know, how many showed up for youth group? We asked, well, how many people showed up on Sunday morning? Uh, and that's often a measurement uh, of whether there's success or not, rather than this kind of discipleship and, and pacing presence. And so are there things that you saw that you spoke to your experience that, that helps, that can help churches shift their mindset, maybe not only with youth ministry, uh, but how we do discipleship as, as a whole, support of the senior pastors, which are, what are some other things that go into really developing that? Yeah, so um, being at a big church, um, you have to be even more intentional about relationships because uh, at a big church, it's just this large gathering and you can, you know, you can do whatever. I remember going on a mission trip to Poland and I'd taken a small group of leaders, uh, of student leaders with us. And 
we went around at the end and we all got to share what surprised us about each other throughout that week. And there was like, there's a total of 20 of us in the room, so it wasn't a huge group that we could, couldn't do that. And I remember this one girl who was a really sharp girl in our, our ministry, and she said to me, it was really cool to get to know your offstage personality. And I was just crushed. Like, there was, a, there was a two different sides to me that, you know, but she had only, um, the contacts I'd had was we had had three, 400 kids in our youth group, and so she hadn't really gotten to know me until this trip. And it was that moment on that we just changed how we did things, and we kind of made sure we shrunk things down to the lowest level, those small groups, and those small group leaders was, <clears throat> was really where ministry happens. And in Youth for Christ right now, too, is, how we know our mission is accomplished is with one leader and one kid. That's where our mission is accomplished. It doesn't, it's not accomplished at the executive director level or at some other level, but it's that one. And I think a church has to be really intentional and you gotta find ways to do that. When I was at Calvary, we, um, I had a great senior pastor that um, was passionate about students and he also was passionate about backpacking. So every summer, um, we would take our high school seniors backpacking and kind of pass the baton of leadership for this next year. But we would also invite Ed with us, and it, it grew. So we had to do two weeks a, a summer. And so Ed, pastor of a, a church of almost 7,000 people, he was twice, two weeks out of every summer, he was spending with high school students. And then afterwards, he would come to my house and hang out with those seniors, which would gather there on Sunday nights and just answer questions and get to know them. And it's, it's relationship. Yeah. yeah, and so I think at that moment, it became their church. And he became their pastor as opposed to, um, you know, in a, it's really easy just to not be relational. All right, I guess I will, uh, I'll share a good story of failure because that's, uh, that's always a good idea. Um, <laughs> As, uh, as trying to figure out what being a youth pastor looks like, um, a lot of the pressures you'll have, um, whether they're from your senior pastor or not, it, it's just a pressure you feel is, our kids coming, right? Our kids coming, our numbers growing, our, our kids coming to Christ. Those are natural pressures you'll have. And so um, a couple of years into youth ministry, it was really growing and, and it was feeling good. I was excited about it. Um, I had a brother who's a missionary in Brazil, and he, was, he had heard good things about uh, the youth ministry, and he was coming home, um, and he wanted to come hang with me. And so it was over uh, Christmas time, and he came to um, one of our youth events, and he was going to share. And, um, and my leaders came, and my brother came, and then we waited for the students to come. And we kept waiting, and no students came that night. And it was humiliating, and it was mortifying, and it, it brought me to a place with um, what are we doing here, and, w and what are my values really? And what I learned from that situation over time was that one, whoever does show up, I'm going to invest in. It doesn't matter about the numbers or how many, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on whoever walks in the door, that's who we're going to invest in. And then two, uh, to what Brian was saying, I'm gonna go and invest in people. Instead of expecting them to come here and be part of our programming, uh, doing what we're doing, which um, is, is what the church feels like a lot of the time we're trying to pull people in, is uh, I'm gonna be a lot more proactive on going, uh, being where they are, and um, just learning who they are. 
And so that was uh, one good lesson I learned through a very um, tough situation. Um, as a leader, I think it's very important to model what you expect and set the example and set the tone. Um, one of my greatest pleasures while at, um, studying at Fuller, I um, interned at a church out there and the pastor as well as the youth pastor modeled intentional relationships, um, building with leaders, volunteers, staff, and students. And that trickle, it had a trickle down effect, everyone. And as soon as, one of the greatest things I saw was as soon as the seniors were moving into their college years, they wanted to stay around and be involved and work with the middle schoolers. And so we found a way to get them involved and to build those relationships. And we will also spend, um, as youth workers, spend a lot of time doing small group and life together. Good, thank you, that's good stuff. Uh, well, let's let's take a couple questions from Slido. Uh, we got top one, uh, Brian. We'll give this one to you first. Uh, how has social media shaped the quote unquote place of where ministry leaders are present or need to be present? Yeah, I, I have a strong advocate. Am I? Yeah. Um, I'm a strong advocate for using the tools that we have to connect with kids. Uh, social media for the adolescent world has just exploded. Uh, and uh, as leaders in the youth ministry, there are some industries that it's probably not appropriate for you to be Facebook friends with the students that you work with. Teachers, uh, counselor, whatnot, you probably shouldn't be um, 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 Facebook friends. But as, as youth leaders, that's a world we get to know kids. And again, I'm, 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 there are boundaries and things that I appreciate that there need to be there. Uh, but again, as we have interactions, that's sometimes the most raw kids are in terms of sharing the things that they're going through. They should be opportunities for us saying, hey, I saw this post one now. Uh, tell me more about this. And sometimes it's right over uh, in the internet, or it's like a face-to-face -face conversation you have with them after you saw it the night before and you're connecting with them. Uh, so I, I'm a fan of using it uh, for the sake of helping to know kids, uh, to hear what's going on, but then to delve in that in a deeper level as much as you can in a face-to-face -face, uh, environment. Because uh, oftentimes it's a cry for help in a lot of ways of what they're sharing. And it's not always that case. And sometimes it's just goofy things that they do. And I say, hey, do you realize what you're doing? The kind of things that you're, you're saying like that that may not be what you want to communicate. Uh, so again, you can use some, uh, some uh, or, uh, uh, discernment, thank you, over, over what that, uh, how that posts and how that kind of happens. But I, I think it's a tool we can use. I live in a strange world of in-between because I grew up when internet was just kicking off to now it's just the number one place where people interact with each other. So it took me a while to get used to it, but I found that it is the number one point of contact for a lot of students. I might text them, I might call them, they might not answer, but if I send them an instant message on Facebook or Instagram, they will answer right back. I have even been able to, at first I was afraid to utilize it at Calvin College working with students, Calvin University, working with students. <laughs> but um, after, because I would email students and they'll be like, I'm not checking my messages or I got a lot of messages and I'm not seeing it. And so I heard one of the, I was telling, I knew a student from a previous um, environment and he, I reached out to him by email and he didn't respond back. Then I get a message on Facebook from him. And I was like, this seems kind of weird, 
with it. And it was like, well, another faculty member uses it as a tool to reach out to students. And so social media, use it, like Brian said, use it with discernment. One of the things I do is I don't request students as friends, but if they request me, then I will accept it. Yeah, this is a good question. I think for, for me personally, uh, social media I use primarily as um, communication first. That's, that's what I see. Um, I have Instagram as well for, for getting things out for youth, which is good. Um, one thing you run into definitely is when you're friends with a lot of students, you, you see a lot of pictures that you're like, all right, that's, that's the reality of where they're at. Um, and so you can't really pretend um, that that isn't their reality because you see what their reality is. So, and I think that's an important place when starting with students is uh, when growing a relationship, when growing spiritually. Um, sometimes we want to pretend that everything's well and that um, they're not going through these issues. Uh, but I think social media really exposes that there's a lot more things uh, students are going through that um, that do need to be dealt with, so let's start there rather than pretending they don't exist. Um, and then finally, the, the place, I don't know exactly um, what's meant by that, but I do know there's all kinds of pressures because uh, social media is so instant. Um, a student could be planning on going to an event for a week, um, but then they see a post that their friend is doing something else, and so there's just so many opportunities to do so many different things at the same moment. Um, they're, they're being asked to choose uh, quite a bit. And, and, and maybe it comes down to what place do I go to that I'll get the best picture of to show my friends, you know? Um, so, so there are very interesting dynamics that are being um, brought up through social media that were um, not always qualified to deal with, but but learning as we go. I think one of the things that social media does for youth ministry is that it, it uh, highlights the need for the relationship because kids are spending so much time talking to a screen, even though they're talking to their friends on the screen. I see my, my daughters doing that all the time, but they crave that personal you know, relationship with somebody that's live in person too. And so we can contrast ourselves to the world in that way um, with the relationship because the world is so technological that when a relationship comes along, it just stands out. And so I think that's a tool that we can, we can leverage and seize upon because it'll, it'll help us uh, you know, enter into that kid's world. Good, that's helpful. Uh, let's, let's look at the next, the next question. Uh, this is a question, all right, from somebody who's not anonymous. Jesse, thanks. Uh, what is an effective way? What is an effective way to turn a church's culture toward relational ministry? We we maybe touched on this a little bit, but you know when you think about how much uh, of a difference that is, maybe from a lot of approaches that, that churches currently take, what are what are some ways uh, to shift that? And and maybe Brian mentioned some of these, but what do you see as obstacles to to making that shift? You want to speak yeah, to I'll, I'll start with it. When I first came to uh, Fifth Reformed Church, I, I remember somebody saying, whoa, things are going to change around here. And I took that as a compliment. Because uh, I felt like one of the things we have to start with is an apologetic. Why we're doing the things we're doing. Why is this theologically so purposeful about what we do? And then it's training folks to come on board. 
uh, with that philosophy, and then you have to model it. You have to live it, and you have to equip your team to do so. Uh, and it will take time. It's not going to change overnight. Just as I went on my first sabbatical thinking I needed to change everything into a family-focused ministry, you can't do it overnight. You have to do it a little bit of step, step by step to make that happen. Uh, but again, I think it starts with apologetic. It starts with uh, you modeling uh, and then equipping and training folks to do it and everybody uh, kind of joining into that. It may mean then pulling back on some of the programs. Because uh, one of my quotes, I don't know if we, we didn't get to it, whether you read it or not, but uh, some of the leaders had said, sometimes we cancel our program events so we can go to kids' events. So we can go be face-to-face. -face. So we're not going to do program that week because we're gonna, our leaders are going to be engaged with kids in their lives. To me, that's a radical shift a paradigm shift in the things, what's important. What's important is being with kids and building those relationships. It's not always the program. Yeah, I think Brian is so right of like, you gotta teach that way. You know, you have to teach them theologically that this is the right way, relational ministry. But then you also have to celebrate it. Um, because uh, the problem in, in churches is the, you see the big events. And so those are have natural celebrations because you see all the people there and you see some of the responses. but. You don't always see the one-on-one -on -one relationship. And so we worked really hard to any time I got a chance to be in front of the board or up in front of church, we had a kid share a story with their leader standing right next to them and modeling that and showing them that because that was the best way for them to understand that this is about not just this kid, but it's about this leader and this kid and their relationship. And so showing them that I think is, is a really important thing. Yeah, I would just add that um, I think Brian wrote uh, talking about beliefs and behavior and that our behavior exposes or reveals what we do believe. And um, so it, it has to be a value that you believe um, uh, time spent with these students is important. And then that the, the behavior will follow that belief. And I, I like the quote or motto, believe, behave, become. So what you believe um, will become your behavior and your behavior over time is what you become so if you're trying to produce a culture or have this kind of culture you start with the belief do you truly believe it is it a value is it what you operate out of that will produce the behavior and the, the culture or who you become and who uh, the ripple effects around you of who um, uh, the students around you they will become like that as well I'm going to lean more towards the obstacle of building a cultural, a relational cultural ministry or shifting the culture in the church. Sometimes the leadership in the church will be a big hindrance. So um, as one who's changed positions a couple of times, it's good to be aware of the mission and the values of the ministry that you're coming alongside with and asking them questions such as, when such an instance of change has occurred, how did that affect the ministry? How did ministry leaders go along with it is very important. So. Good, we have time for about one more question. So let's, uh, we'll take the one at the top. Uh, what do you think is a better metric for health and student ministry than attendance? So how, so how, how, do, you, how do you measure this kind of really pacing presence, you, you see the difference. What are the things that you're really looking for? Maybe, Brian, if you take that first and then we'll. Yeah, the, fir the first thing that stands out to me is thinking uh, of the students that I worked with, that we had folks that didn't come to youth group. Uh, and uh, just because they didn't come to youth group, I didn't think that they were not part of our ministry because I had a relationship with 
granted, I had to tell the story of those kind of things to, to the staff and to even, and, and the parents knew well uh, that I had a relationship uh, with these folks, even though they didn't come to Easter for whatever reason, uh, myriad of other reasons why, why that might be the case. And so again, spouting back to the idea of how valuable that consistency uh, and the relational time that we spend with folks. So a big part of that is looking at, well, how do I um, portion out my week? And where is that time going? And then communicating that to folks that they clearly get that the, where we're spending our time throughout our days. Because oftentimes we get that question in youth ministry, what do you do all day? Yeah, you run an event on a Sunday night, maybe a Wednesday. Well, what, what's the rest of your week look like? Well, you can clearly tell them, here's my week. Here's who I've spent breakfast with. Here's who I had lunch with. Here's what schools I've been to. Here's the games and events I'm going to. That changes the culture uh, for people to understand what's invaluable, what's important. So to begin to measure things based on time spent with people and the depth of those relationships. Because again, we think because 200 kids show up to a youth group that, oh man, that's, that's fantastic. Well, why? Why is that fantastic? What's going on there that makes that fantastic? Uh, let's, let's identify some of the ingredients that help the folks to understand what it is we're trying to do when we're gathering that kind of group of people. And then what are the relational connections that happen as a result of those kind of things? My initial reaction. I would say um, observation, building relationships outside of ministry, um, watching the change in students and the development, the maturity of them, who they're hanging with, what they're talking about on social media um, is very important. And it's a great measure. Uh, I would say my pastor is asking the same question over the last 11 years. How am I supposed to measure you, right? Um, one thing I've seen over the years that I, that, that I can say is incredibly important is when you do build that relationship, uh, when you do have that relationship, there's about... Um, in seven years, from junior high to senior high, there's about one or two really significant moments um, that will happen in that student's life where, you know, maybe it's someone dies, maybe it's their parents getting divorced, uh, maybe it's a, a classmate going through something um, very serious. Um, but there's, there's real-life moments and real pain um, where they're in trouble and they're hurting and they just need somebody. And when you show up in those moments, um, I've seen that's kind of where the most profound uh, change can happen. Not that you're going there with answers, but what you are doing is you're there with them um, in one of the times they're hurting most in their life. And I think that produces the most growth in someone, knowing that uh, you love them enough and you love them because you, you know what it is to be loved uh, by God. And you get to be there with them in those moments. Um, over time, that plays huge dividends in a relationship. And so I don't know how you can say that's an exact measurement, but I, I can say um, that's profoundly important in someone's life. So at Youth for Christ, we measure a thing called authentic Christ-sharing relationships. And it is basically one leader and one kid that they're walking through and having spiritual conversations, having, doing life with them, uh, walking through all the different challenges that they, they face. And, you know, to say that numbers are not important is not totally true either. Um, and so I'd hate for you to walk away from this saying, thinking that, well, it's just about going to a couple of games here and there and, and having a few relationships. But 
we do have a stewardship to be able to continue to increase the numbers of kids that we're serving and we're pouring into. We just don't need to measure that top of the funnel number is where I think we've spent way too much time on, and that is how many kids are coming. We have thousands of kids that come to our programs at Youth for Christ, but the number that I look at as success is how many of those kids do we know by name, and then the next one is how many of those kids are in an authentic Christ-sharing relationship with a godly, caring adult. And uh, I just sat in a meeting last week uh, nationally, and I saw this bell curve of uh, statistics in Youth for Christ and the top performing ministry sites, so um, a school like Northview or whatever is in that top performing ministry site in the United States with Youth for Christ. And the difference between the top 25% and the bottom 25% is astounding. I mean, it's huge. And, and the difference as you look into the numbers is it's not just the numbers. I mean, the cool thing is the numbers of kids that are in authentic Christian relationships, but you look at why. Why are those kids inauthentic? And most of it is because of the number of leaders and how many hours they spend with kids. And that's what it comes down to. And that's how we're trying to measure success in Youth for Christ. Um, and in Young Life does the same thing, I know. Um, that's what the true measurement is. That's why we don't want them in the office. Well, Brian, panelists, uh, we want to thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, for your willingness to share with us today. Uh, will you join me in thanking our panelists?